Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. I have said, look, the rule of law requires, at least in part, rules that are fixed and announced beforehand so that we all know what the rules are. And that's not the way our government works today. It is case by case, day by day, problem by problem, agency by agency. What's the new situation today? Let's fix this. That is not what Hayek meant by the rule of law. Greetings once again for Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I am Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. My guest today is Bruce Party. He is professor of law at Queen's University. He's executive director for an organization called Rights Probe. He's a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute, and you probably also see his work in the post-media newspaper chain. He joins us now to talk about our institutions and how they interact with the courts and whether or not we, they can, we can rely on them to protect our rights. Professor Party, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks, Danielle. It's always a pleasure. You know, I think you're going to have to give us a bit of a political science lesson because I think we have an idea of how our system works, how it's split into different divisions and one acts as a check on the other. And we've got this charter of rights that expresses what the state can and cannot do to us. But all of it seems to be falling apart. It's not working as it should. So why don't you tell us how the system is supposed to work? And then we'll see if there's any vestiges of it that are still functioning properly in this COVID world we find ourselves in. Okay, okay. That's a good good, good place to start. So, of course, different people will have different answers to that question. If you ask a different person, they might say, oh, things are working just fine. Because things are working just fine in accordance with some people's visions. But, but my vision and the vision of people like me is starts with this, perhaps, that you have in the state three different branches. You have legislature, you have executive, and you have courts. And one of the principles upon which our system is supposed to be based is the separation of function and separation of powers between those three branches. That means legislatures make laws. They make the rules. They decide the value judgments. They make the value judgments. They do everything in the open. They're democratically elected. They have legitimacy to do that. They make the rules. The executive is there to execute those rules, hence the name. They take the rules given by the legislature and they carry them out. There's administration required to, to do all that, and that's fine. And then the judiciary is there to adjudicate, there to take those rules and apply those rules to the specific cases and the specific parties that appear before them. And if that's what we had, in theory, the system ought to work pretty well. But the problem is that that separation of powers has basically been dissolved because you have these three different branches doing the other function without real concern about the overlap and the bleeding in. So an example in this COVID area, what you've got is you have the legislature 
passing these statutes that basically consists of a delegation of authority mm-hmm. to officials, public health officials, for example, to you know issue directives to certain institutions. And so now the, the lawmaking authority is held by a bureaucrat. That's a part of the executive branch. So, you know, you get different directives coming out, you know, sometimes month to month, week to week, day to day. Those ideas, those those basic rules, I mean, again, in theory, are supposed to be in the statute passed by the legislature. But the legislature in this case, and more and more in the past few years, the legislature has done exactly this. They've passed statutes that delegate rulemaking authority by way of regulation, direction, guideline, as the case may be to the executive branch. So it's not like these three branches are fight. Well, they do fight, but but they're really in, all in on the idea that they'll be doing broad things that might encroach upon the traditional definition of what it is they're supposed to do. So in the courts, for example, more and more, the Supreme Court in particular has said, or some, or some particular judges have said, that they view their role as making policy deciding cases on the basis of policy, social policy. You know, what what values in society should prevail? Okay, that's not supposed to be their job. According well, this to is, this, a, you this know, it's, it's so interesting to hear you describe this because I did spend a time sitting in a legislature and it's remarkable to me that you've, you've stated that the starting point of the rulemaking should begin with the legislative body, the elected MLAs or MPs. But in practice, you know, it doesn't actually work that way. What I I would observe happens is that, and maybe it's because we have this strange Westminster parliamentary system where the executive is chosen on the basis of who gets the most seats and then the cabinet ministers are chosen from those who get elected. It's not the same thing in a republic. In the U.S. system, the executive is chosen from the general public and the president gets his power independently. But what I would observe happens is that a lot of rulemaking gets pushed up to legislation that is advanced by the executive because it comes from the bureaucrat or it's some court ruling that you have to bring things into compliance with. There's there's not a lot of the legislature or the process taking place from individual MLAs. They they almost seem like a rubber stamp because they're all jockeying for cabinet posts. And so they don't even end up providing a very solid check on the rules that are coming forward. But in any case, most of them seem to be generated from this administrative level of government, which is, I don't think that's how it, it sounds like from what you described, that's not how it's supposed to be working. Well, so there's all kinds of reasons why it is working in this way or, or not working in this way. Um, let me just back up a step. So the case has been made that this separation of powers idea that I mentioned has its purest form in the U.S., as you described, where they have an actual division in the in the people between the executive branch head, headed by the president and then Congress at the federal level. And in Canada, that 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 is not really that distinct and you know it's a fair it's a fair case to be made that there's not nearly as 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 much separation between the legislative and executive branches here because you have common people involved you have the people sitting in the in the legislature but you have the executive branch headed by 
a premier and a, and a cabinet or the prime minister mm -hmm. and the cabinet. And they, they have roles in both of those branches. So how can there be separation? Well, it's true. You have common people, but they wear different hats at different moments. Right. And it is also true. The point that you made that often the legislative endeavors are generated by the executive branch, the bureaucrats come forward and say, we want, we, we would like this, or we see this in the statute. And then the, the legislature puts it into place as directed by the, the cabinet, right? So, but how, so how, the, how can there be separation? Well, it's because you still have a basic proposition, which is the executive branch is empowered to essentially do nothing that's not authorized by a statute. And so you still need the stamp of the legislature in order to authorize all of the things the executive wants to do, which is why they go through this dance. Can I get you to clarify on one other point? Because I've always thought of the executive as being the elected people who are assuming cabinet roles. But there's a blending there that you're talking about mm. with the administration and the bureaucracy or the agency or whatever that is empowered to enact. Is there is there a clearer line? Well, let's put it this way. The the those politicians that are part of the executive branch are the are the head of the executive branch, but they're not the totality of it. So the executive branch includes the rest of the managerial state. So mm -hmm. all the ministries, all the departments, all the public institutions, the tribunals, all of those things that are a piece of the state that are neither legislature nor court are really a part of the executive branch. Huh. And that's that's most of it today. In, the, in, in this sort of expansive administrative welfare state that we have, most of the state is part of this executive branch of government. So right? what, role, what, what role should a cabinet minister play? Because I'll tell you what I, what I would observe happens. It seems like as soon as somebody gets a cabinet position, they believe it's their job to cheerlead everything that's happening in their department. And so whose job is it to watchdog and audit and find the problems and expose them and address the issues? It, it seems like there's a fiduciary responsibility that that cabinet member should have. I'm kind of thinking of it like the role of a corporate board of directors, but I don't observe that that, that really happens. And so am I misapprehending the role of a, cap, a cabinet minister? Is that what they're supposed to do? Are they supposed to be a cheerleader for what happens in their department? Well, in part, right, there's a tension there because I probably, you know, I think that it's fair to say that they, they do in part have that role. But so they are, they are the, in theory, the political overseer of their portfolio. But then on the other hand, they're also the, the, the messenger of that portfolio to the cabinet. So, so they're sort of being pulled in two directions and their loyalties of course, I think primarily should be to the to the, the the cabinet and the political class. But I mean, you can see you can see the tensions work out, and you can see to the degree to which the ministers don't actually control things. If you just take the lessons from from that old uh, British comedy, uh, yes, yes, minister, right? The the, the 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 theory and the fiction is that ministers control what happened in the government, and they do have responsibility for their portfolios. But they don't always have control over what happens because it's a vast bureaucracy. And a lot of things that are happening are happening independently of the political class and the particular instructions that are given by a minister day to day. But I just wanted to touch on one other thing that you that you that you mentioned. This, 
you know, why is it that that legislatures do this? And when I say do this, I mean delegate their authority away. And part of it is that we have so much work to do now by governments. I mean, there are so many laws about so many things that it's it's practically impossible for a minister or, or a cabinet or for that matter, a legislature to 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 get a handle on all the things that are happening inside a government. There's a there's a there's a quote. I forget now who said the quote, but it's very telling. I think it goes. Dying societies accumulate laws like dying men accumulate remedies. Oh my. The more laws you have about everything, probably the worse shape that you're in. So you're caught. You're so that would imply that we're a dying society, which is why when I've been reading your background materials, I've been becoming more and more morose. There's a, and, and I hope at the end of this, you'll give us some hope. But there's two things that made me think of as you were talking, because I did used to watch Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. And one of the ways that uh, that Sir Humphrey would always distract Jim Hackett, the po yes. elected politician, is to put the headlines of the newspapers in front of him so he could That's see right. whether he was scoring or whether he was not. And it does actually seem, sadly, that way that our politicians are so distracted by the public opinion polls and the headlines in the newspaper and the popularity. And so they do default to letting their senior bureaucrats run the show. The other thing that I thought of was that there was an adage when I was in the, the legislature, a bit of a joke, that they stripped out so much of the meaningful power that you would normally approve in the legislature that sometimes a bill felt like all you were approving was the name of it because everything right. else had been right. delegated right. To, right. to cabinet right. to make up right. the regulations with their bureaucracy. So well, there's, but there's also an element, though, in the legislature itself, partly for the reasons that you're describing, that the legislature actually doesn't, doesn't want to have the job of making the call. So, for example, I, I was um, giving testimony in front of the Senate, a Senate committee dealing with Bill C-16 way back when the, the amendments were being made to the Canadian Human Rights Act with respect to, you know, the question of non-gender pronouns and so on. And, and one of the senators in the in the hearing said, well, you know, why don't, why don't we just send it to the court? And, and let the court decide what to do. You know, what the proper thing to do is. Let, let the court decide what the proper thing to do is. And I said to this person, but, but you're the legislature. You know, legislate. The idea of being a legislature means that you make the call. What is it that you mean? Tell us what you want. At least tell us what you want. Their job, or they think their job now, seems to be to stay out of trouble. And not to articulate exactly what it is that they mean instead to give the responsibility to somebody else whether it's the court or to a bureaucrat or to a to the to the regulation making body or to the public health official for them to problem solve you know as you know case by case week by week what's the situation today what new directive should we put in today that's not the way it's supposed to work at least according to people like me if you go back to to uh, what hayek said hayek said look the rule of law requires, at least in part, rules that are fixed and announced beforehand so that we all know what the rules are. And that's not the way our government works today. It is case by case, day by day, problem by problem, you know, 
agency by agency, what's the new situation today? Let's fix this. That is not what Hayek meant by the rule of law. Well, let's talk then about what it is that we created this system from that was supposed to be an improvement on a traditional monarchy. You may have to take us all the way back to the Magna Carta, because the sense that I get is that the the, the monarch, the king, used to have all of these roles. I should say queen, yes. too, because we've had a lot of, of female monarchs in UK history. But the notion was that the queen was all... was. There was no legislative branch. It was all executive working with their administrative state. And they, weren't they even magistrates as well? Weren't they the ones who they and their appointees would go around and they would adjudicate? So all it was the, power. The, the, king, the king's courts. Yes, the king's courts. That's 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 where what we had a long, long time ago. And 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 so this idea of separation of powers start starts with that idea, right? So the king can still be the executive branch, but the king shall be limited to what the legislature says shall be done. The legislature shall make the rules. And the and the king's courts, which became which became common law courts, you know, would, would, would apply the rules of the locality and then later would apply the rules as passed by the legislature. And so and so there's a tension in the in the in the judicial judicial realm as well, right? Because so so we have common law and common law is judge made law. And so some people leap from that to the idea that, oh, well, no, the courts can make it up because courts have always made it up. No. The courts made the common law, so it's in the court's hands. Well, that's not quite the same thing because even in the common law system, the court today is supposed to apply the common law as has been laid down by courts over time from case to case to case to case. And you, the job of the court is not to make stuff up. Originally, today, you're supposed to abide by precedent like cases shall be decided alike so in in this whole system the idea and this goes back to the rule of law idea the rule of law the way i like to articulate the rule of law idea is the rule of law is the opposite of the rule of persons and whenever you have control by somebody in particular to decide what the rule is how it shall be executed and what the outcome of the case is then you don't have the rule of law and you don't have separation of powers. The whole idea is that nobody has the power to decide the whole thing on their own, not the legislature, not the executive, not the courts. So give me a history lesson in the Magna Carta, because I often wondered if that was really just signed off as a bit of a don't kill me on the on the field and running me just to oh, yeah. get the aristocrats off his back or sure. if it really was some kind of grand vision about how we were going to transform the way governance worked well not really and it, it and of course the magna carta didn't didn't involve creating you know what we would call today human rights for everybody it was just a particular class of people and it was as you uh, as you allude to it was a way to resolve a political dispute and it and it and it it didn't take initially, and then didn't take again, and so it's not actually in force now. But it was the beginning of an idea. That's what its real importance is. It was the beginning of an idea, and the idea is that the king doesn't have ultimate power. That 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 um, that the rule of law involves a distinction between what the king can do and what others can do. And it's the beginning of the idea of individual rights. So we trace a lot of our law back to those ideas, but the Magna Carta itself is not 
the, the, the place where they are articulated, you know, the best or the, or in a lasting way. But it's, you know, of course, a very, a very important step. So tell me where the idea of individual rights came from. I, I tend to be a, a big fan of John Locke with life, liberty, property, the whole notion that if you work your blood and your sweat into the soil of the land, it becomes yours. As And so this starts with self-ownership, an owner of labor. And right. you can extend that out then. Everything that is the product of your, of your labor then becomes something that you've got domain over. But that yes. came much later than the Magna Carta. And yes. I, I think we've had a conception of rights throughout history, but I, I have, I have, um, I have this concern that America really is a grand new experiment, and I don't know if if America is following even the same principles upon which it's founded. G give me, give me your history of of where this strengthened notion of individual rights actually came from. Well, I don't think it's a straight line. I, I, I think you get um, inklings here and there, and I think the Magna Carta is a very important one. Um, you know, may, maybe. Well, maybe the earliest one in the English context, but I mean, you have you have notions of this even going into back into Roman law, and you have the Greeks talking about democracy and so on. And so, it's a it's a it's a it's a thing that's built slowly over time, um, and it of course originates you know far before the birth of the Industrial Revolution. But that also helps. Right, because you get a different notion of the nature of labor, and and property holding, and who has the power, and all of those things start to change from what you know. There's a lot of feudalism in in history, especially in Europe, um, the tenurial system in England, where people are bound to the land and serve, serving the, the the landlord that they are under, and, and gradually that system starts to dissolve and and especially so when you when you finally hit the industrial revolution and the industrial revolution sort of travels for a period uh you know um hand in glove with with the idea of individual autonomy so it's it's not a it's not a clear thing i mean it, the the american declaration of independence the bill of rights is sort of a stark beginning of something and quite extraordinary of course um but it's 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 not the actual beginning of this idea in sort of Anglo English American history. It it builds and it builds and it builds and then it, then it becomes something. And for our purposes, what's actually happening is, or what has happened is, it, it sort of built and it was never perfect, right? It was ne we never had an ideal situation where individual autonomy was always the preeminent value, and everything worked perfectly. That that utopia never existed. But what's happening now is that, that that arc, if you like, is going the other way now. Mm -hmm. You sort of lost that, that threshold or plateau. And now there is a definite and distinctive inclination to reject that premise that people decide things for themselves and they're entitled to decide things without regard for public good. You, you Your are rights so are yours and you can decide what to do with them without regard to public good. That idea is starting to dissolve.
you're you're so right. I, I want to. We will get more deeply into how that transformation took place. But can you tell me the difference between the American conception of rights versus the Canadian conception of rights as enshrined in the Bill of Rights? Because the the notion I was told is that the American conception, the the way their uh, their founding documents are written, is to put limitations on Congress. Congress shall pass no law which abridges these enumerated rights that are granted by the creator. So the the notion is that the just by nature of being human, you um you are endowed with inalienable rights. But I don't think our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms has that same conception really. And I'm I, I wonder if you can articulate what the difference between the two is because I think it's important. Sure, it's it's partly a difference in attitude and culture but let's just start with the difference in the text so the charter of rights has section one and section one is the reasonable limits provision and it essentially explicitly allows governments to to infringe charter rights if they're demonstrably justified and prescribed by law which means that if a court finds that a particular right has in fact been infringed then the government then has the onus of showing that nevertheless it's okay because we're trying to solve a problem here and the problem is important and the infringement is not so not so serious and the whole thing is proportional to the problem we're trying to solve and and so on so it's an out if you like an explicit out uh, that the american version doesn't have now one might leap to the conclusion therefore that the american rights are absolute and the Canadian rights are not. They're relative and subject to this exception. I'm not sure that's quite right because it's very difficult to find a right that is absolute. It has no exceptions because sometimes rights conflict with each other. And there are lots of situations in the States where technically speaking, yeah, one of those rights is infringed. So let's take just take a simple example. In the US, they have, like we do in Canada, the law of defamation. And defamation says, well, you can't say certain things about other people unless you can show a defense. Okay. Well, in the Bill of Rights says you have freedom of expression. Second Amendment. Oh, sorry, uh, First Amendment. Um, so technically speaking, your freedom of speech is infringed by the fact that they have defamation laws, is it not? Well, okay, but and, and you can find other examples as well. There are other kinds of sort of speech restrictions in the US that have been held to be, yeah, okay. So there is still a process of deciding, you know, where the limit of the right lies. The difference in the in the way the text goes is that the the those limits are contained within the particular definitions or the particular articulations of the uh, rights themselves in the American version. And in the Canadian version, we have this extra section, section one. Now, that doesn't mean that our courts are still not doing the same kind of process within the particular sections that the American courts are doing. They're taking, you know, the freedom of expression in section two and saying, right, well, what does that mean? You know, what are the limits of freedom of expression? Has this has this freedom been infringed in the same way that a court, American court would do? But then in the Canadian version, there's an extra step. They have to go then to section one. Right. And we'll talk about in practice what that has meant. Can you bring in any of Quebec civil code into this because I, I think it was Jordan Peterson who recently was was uh, gave an interview with Dave Rubin and he talked about how 
in fact, so much of our conception of rights is shaped by how Quebec perceives rights in the civil code. And I, I don't know if I know the difference be between the Quebec system versus the Canadians, well, the English speaking Canada system. Right. So Quebec is the civil law jurisdiction in Canada. The other provinces are common law jurisdictions. And so the difference between these two kinds of, of systems, and this is basically the difference between the English, so the, the uh, British system and the European systems in the various countries of, of Europe, they tend to be civil systems. The difference is that it's civil law countries can have their laws contained in a code, which is basically a uh, a, a very long or, or a collection of statutes, but, but accumulated in this one code that sort of describes what the laws are. And in, a, in the common law system, in those subjects that are still ruled by common law, and there's still, there's still a lot of common law around, uh, those laws can't be found in a statute anywhere. They're not written down in a statute. They're not passed by the legislature. They are literally found in the cases through the years of the courts. And that's quite a, a quite a difference in the way the two systems work. So if you have a if you have a problem in uh, contract or tort, for example, it might be that the answers to your legal question are not found in the statute anywhere. They're found in all the case reports that might be recent or long ago, uh, as opposed to going to the code. And the idea of the code is everything is codified. The law you need to know is here. Now, in practice, the difference between these two systems is not maybe as acute as, as it sounds, hmm. because in the common law system, we now have statutes, and those statutes sometimes codify and change the common law. So you now have a combination of what was in the common law and as altered by the statute. And sometimes those statutes replace common law and create a whole new regime. And in that sense, it's codified and very much like the civil version. In the civil system, yeah, it's not common law. It's all written down in theory, but then courts interpret those words and they apply it in cases mm -hmm. and they might not have the same kind of, of precedent system in the, as the common law does. But on the other hand, those court decisions are not irrelevant. So you go and find out what happened in this case to find out you know, how to apply that section. So over time, the two systems start to look a little bit like each other more and more, even though they start in different places. Well, and it's true, and both play a lot of lip service to the term liberty, liberty, fraternity, galaty, I guess, is the rallying cry in France. And yet France has gone even further than the UK in establishing vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. That's why I've sort of been curious about it, is that we seem to be more influenced in this country by what's happening in France than we are by what's happening in the UK. And I wondered if there was some kind of slip that happened that all of a sudden we're now following Quebec civil code as opposed to following the English common law tradition. You, you, I would almost expect for there to be more synchronicity in how we operate compared to the United the United Kingdom, but it, it doesn't seem like we're following um, our, 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 our sister country very closely. Well, perhaps, but I think maybe the same thing is happening in the UK itself. So there's a, mm -hmm. there's a, Let's put it this way. The, the legal ground is shifting. Things are not what we think they are and they're not what they were. So let me just, you mentioned rights and, 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 and liberty. Those very concepts, which are at the heart of everything, 
their their meaning is changing. Hmm. So if you talk to somebody, and depends upon who it is, of course, but if you talk to somebody about freedom, some people would say that freedom consists of the right to be left alone. This is a negative freedom. This is the kind of right that that people like me believe that is contained in the American Bill of Rights and is supposed to be contained in the in the Charter of Rights. But if you ask somebody else, they'll say that freedom consists of the ability to do what you need to do or the ability to to fulfill your potential. Mm -hmm. And, And that requires a little bit of interpretation. What they mean is freedom is the ability to access the resources to maximize your life. That that's a positive right. In other words, freedom means that the government owes you stuff. Because if I don't have a place to live, then I'm not free. And this is not just this is this is not just a a thick debate. This this goes to the heart of what we mean by being free. What, what does liberty mean? Same with rights. Um, you know, I would I would be on the side of being in the Leave Me Alone coalition until I heard your debate with uh, jo- uh, with Jonathan Kay from the National Post when we were talking about this really tough issue of vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. And I, if I can summarize the the argument he was putting forward and get your response to it, because it's been bothering me, right. is there is this notion that okay, fine, yes, you have absolute freedom to be left alone. And he's taken it that one step further and others who would argue the same thing. And it's therefore we can ostracize you. You are free to go live off the land and get your own food and build your own shelter. But this is the price for participating in society. If you want to have any social interactions, if you want to be able to go to a restaurant, be at an event, have a job, then this is the price of entry into society. And right. that is, um, that's troubling because it takes the libertarian notion of leave me alone to the full extreme, but heck, I want to be left alone so, can I, so I can realize my full potential in society. And is that where we're going? Is that those two aspirations are now fundamentally at odds? Well, maybe, but let's just back up a step. So in a free society, in, a, in an actually free society, which we don't have right now, but in an actually free society, Everybody would be free to make their own call about who they wanted to associate with, um, what the rules were for for them and for them alone. And, you know, if you had a shop, then you could decide who you wanted to serve and who could be on the property and whether or not you wanted vaccinated or unvaccinated people, uh, you know, who you preferred. If you didn't want short people in the in the shop, you could say no short people inside. You you would be free to decide what happens on your property and your business. And if that was the case, then Jonathan's proposition that well, there are consequences to your choices, and the answer is, of course, there are. Right. So if if I don't want to wear clothes, and you want people with clothes on in your shop, then you can say, well, don't go, don't come in. And maybe this maybe. There'll be a there'll be a shop down the street who will say, "Well, that's okay. We'll take you naked." But you, what you've got now is a is a is a marketplace of preferences, 
And I don't just mean a free market in the commercial sense. I mean a marketplace of everybody's inclinations. And if you have that situation, well, then all you need is negative rights. Because if, let, let, let's say, let's imagine a shop that discriminates. Okay. If you have this freedom to do as you want in your own store, and you make the foolish decision to only serve, you know, one racial group, well, your competitor down the street is going to say, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to take all her customers that have been re refused and I'm going to serve them and I'm going to make more money than she is. Okay. That's the way it's supposed to work. The difference between that and what we have now is it's the government that is making the call mm -hmm. about who gets to participate and who gets to, who has to stay at home. Okay. That is not the same thing at all. It's, um, it's diametrically opposed. It's all very well to say, well, there are consequences to your choices. Sure. But the government is deciding what those consequences are. And that's not a, that's not a free society. Let's, let's then talk about the, the reason why we're approaching this differently, because it's, it's a, and you, you've written quite a bit on externalities as well. And that, and that's kind of what it comes down to, but I, I it feels like is the wrong application of the rule. This notion that I'm free, but I'm not free to carry my germs into your personal sphere and infect you. That's, I think, what is behind this notion of uh, of, of limiting those uh, public spaces to those who have been vaccinated. It all falls apart, of course, because we're now seeing that vaccinated individuals are also getting diagnosed with COVID and also passing it on, and which then right. goes back to the point of what is the true agenda of it. But, but if you're to argue that you're not uh, allowed to infect somebody else with your germs. We're, we're getting into a, an area that we've never been in before. I mean, there are certain things that as much as we would like to, the administrative state cannot stop. We've had viruses, colds, bacteria, fungi, microbes. It's sort of part of the history of the development of, of humanity and civilization. And is this a, a manifestation of our absolutely unrealistic expectations of what government can and cannot do. We're actually, sure. we're, we're asking the government to stop the transmission of viruses, which, yeah. which seems bananas. It's crazy. It's crazy. It makes no sense. So this argument that you hear from some people now, which is, well, I have the right to be free from, you know, the, 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 the breath that you are expelling in the store and because you might have a virus and that's against the law. That argument's never been made before. I mean, we've, we've had colds, we've had flu, we have all kinds of respiratory illnesses that that float around and are spread all the time. This argument's being made just about COVID. So if you're going to have this rule about COVID, you got to have it for everything. Mm -hmm. So how, how is that going to work? It, 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 it's 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 crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It and doesn't. It's, make it's not, it doesn't. It's not the way it works. It's interesting though, but it, it, for some people, it is a very compelling argument and they act as if it's true. And I guess where I thought this would be adjudicated would be in the courts. I, I sort of expected the judiciary to play the role that we talked about when we began is that they would see the laws being passed. They would balance it against individual rights. They would determine if it was a reasonable limitation and they'd be yeah. striking down all kinds of things. In practice, that is not what's happened. I don't know that there's been any of the cases that have gone to court that have struck down any of these draconian rules and why right. not well, the well the well it's a good question a really good question and deserves a good answer so the vaccine mandates themselves though those challenges haven't haven't come before the courts yet but we've had a lot of other challenges to other 
COVID rules like lockdowns and quarantines and so on. And we have had some vaccine related uh, cases come out in the family law context. Uh, but you can see in, in these various kinds of cases that the courts so far have been inclined to take the government's story at face value. To, to accept. So let me give you one example. In Saskatchewan, in September, there was a decision in a family law situation of a, a separated or divorced um, uh, couple with a 14-year-old girl. And the uh, father wanted the girl to be vaccinated against COVID, and the mother did not. And it ended up in court because there was a dispute. And the extraordinary thing about the case to me was not necessarily the result. The result was that the court ordered that the girl could be vaccinated according to the father's wishes. And that might make some people pause, including myself, but that's not the really interesting part. For me, the interesting part was that the judge took judicial notice of the risk of the virus and of the safety of the vaccines to both adults and children, including the 14 year old. In other words, there was a dispute in the case first about you know which parent had the, had the power to decide what hap should happen to the child, but also what was in the best interest of the child. And instead of the party's evidence being considered about risks and benefits, the in the decision, the judge basically said, well, I'm going to take judicial notice of the nature of the risk from the, from the virus, and I'm going to take judicial notice of the fact that the vaccine is safe and effective for adults and children. Okay. Well, judicial notice is not for deciding the factual dispute upon which cases are based. Judicial notice is, is for the purpose of, of recognizing facts that are you know, widely known and not really in dispute and would be a waste of judicial resources to, to require, require parties to prove that the sky is blue. Everybody knows the sky is blue. Everybody knows the earth goes around the sun. Um, in this case, those questions were the questions in dispute. But the court took judicial notice of that. It sounds to me then, just so I'm clear on the terminology, because I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but does that mean that the, the court asserted vaccines are safe for children and adults and rejected any notion that there might be some concern about vaccine injury, that it was not even considered, and also rejected any notion that this might not affect each age group the same way. He just correct. didn't want to even consider that. Correct. That's correct. Is that appropriate? I guess this is the problem. Um, if Where should that be adjudicated if it's not adjudicated in a court? Because where, you know, and you've observed this go? too, is that you're not even have, allowed to have these discussions in um, national newspapers or on podcasts or on uh, official broadcasting networks. And so if you can't put doctors up against each other to dispute the things that we're discussing here, how is the court supposed to be informed? I just don't know where that forum is supposed to take place. Well, you're, you're, you're basically left without one, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're involved in a particular dispute like this or another kind of course, that's, that's where you're supposed to have the chance to bring your evidence. And, and the job of the, of the, of the court, again, in theory, is that one of, one of the great things about courts is supposed to be their lack of expertise. 
their lack of expertise in all the different kinds of subject matter that might come before them, right? We think, you know, it's good to have specialized people who have expertise in particular things that can decide things. No, the best kind of adjudicator is someone who knows nothing about what you're talking about and starts from scratch and decides the case on the basis of only what they hear from the parties in the courtroom. They don't come with a predetermined notion of what the situation is. You, the parties get to teach that person about the thing in contention and not worry about, about, about preconceived notions. That's the, that's the theory of why judges can be knowledgeable about the law, but about everything else, they can know nothing whatsoever. So it appears to me that what's happening here is that they're failing in their duty, that they, they're supposed to hear the arguments put forward and say, hmm, on the balance of the facts I've heard, this is what I think is the right decision. It's almost like they're being deferential. It's almost like they're saying, I got no expertise in this, so I'm just going to defer to what the health officials say. And it's interesting because that almost seems to me to be the same argument that resulted in the over in the uh, in the Supreme Court saying that the provinces didn't have the right to dispute the federal carbon tax because there's a whole first page on the climate science and it was we no one disputes these facts they just asserted right. a number of things yep. that could be that could be uh, I think disputed but I'm I'm wondering if that's sort of a new era that we're entering into with the courts as well as that they don't feel like they can challenge anyone with any expertise if it's on uh, it, it falls into the category of conventional wisdom or majority view of a scientific body or a scientific community. Is, it, is that where we're heading? Yes. Yes. It, at least in part, I think. I mean, this is the era of of deference in administrative law. I mean, we've been in, we've been in that period for a while. So when administrative lawmakers or, or, or decision makers are reviewed, uh, their decisions are reviewed, not, not appealed, but reviewed in a court, essentially the, the in Canada, we have not not just in Canada, but in Canada, we have basically a, a deferential administrative law, meaning that those decisions are not going to be reviewed on a correctness standard. In other words, the court's not going to put itself in the shoes of the decision maker and decide whether or not the call was correct. Instead, the court will assess whether or not the decision maker was reasonable, you know, sort of within the bounds of what might be considered a reasonable decision based upon what the statute says and what the facts were and so on. So it is possible in our system of law to have an administrative decision maker, you know, one of these people who are part of the executive branch, who gets something wrong and still be upheld by a court because correctness is not the standard. It's so interesting. It, you've, you've described for me why I'm so fundamentally at odds with the direction that is being taken by the majority, because I I feel like I can hear any argument from anybody and be able to parse out what I think is reasonable and true and what is not. And I guess I assume that that's what the court should be doing. So you're, now you're telling me that they're they're not doing it. But but what I I guess I'm curious about is how you undo that because I, I've talked to some people about the culture that exists within academia, and the more and you're you, you're in academia too, so maybe you can tell me if this has the ring of truth about it. Is that the more specialized you get in your area? Mm -hmm. It's almost like you want 
the deference paid to you by others that you know more than them. And so you, as a courtesy, apply that same deference to them. And so you end up with academics not willing to step outside their boundary to say, hmm, maybe that's not true. And yet it seems to me some of the greatest leaps of intuition happen when you do see that, that crossover in academic disciplines. Yes, I think that it's all, all, all true. There is, there is, I'm afraid, an inclination in academia, especially in those, especially in those disciplines that are involved in making or contributing to public policy, and, and not just in academia, also in the bureaucracy and, and even in the professions. But there are an awful lot of people out there who think that they are needed to tell people what to do. That is that is the reason for their expertise. That's the reason for their professional achievements. That's 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 that that's what they think their function is. And I've talked to more than one person over the years who confronted with the proposition that well, actually, maybe people should decide for themselves. That they are genuinely perplexed. At that idea, he, he, I remember talking to, to to a colleague about this one time at a conference. He basically said, "You don't really mean that people should be left alone to decide these things for themselves. You can't really mean that. That that's one of the premises upon which a lot of these disciplines are based. We are there to help you, and you can't do this without us. And as long as you have that idea, both in academia and especially in government." where that idea is also rampant, you are going to have what we actually have, which is a, which is a growing managerial state trying to hurt us all, all our, all us poor souls through our lives because we couldn't be doing it on our own. As long as you have that idea, you're going to have trouble. The thing that's terrifying about that is that we've got so much data now and new mechanisms developing to assist that administrative state in giving them the belief that they can do it machine learning and AI and being able to feed a bunch of data into a computer that that's almost maybe what's leading to this, dare I call it fatal conceit that you actually, we now have finally developed enough technical technological means and enough data to be able to get the right answer. It's Mm -hmm. almost, is that is that part of the reason for this? Uh, th- th- well, it's not the reason arrogance? for it because this technology has it means coming on board now for sure. <clears throat> Excuse me, but this idea predates all that technology. But we the, the administrative state has been growing for for a long time, you know, more than mm-hmm. half a century for sure, easily uh, in leaps and bounds. And, and you know, so let's put it this way. The administrative state is not provided for in the text of the Constitution. Hmm. The Constitution does not say, well, we're going to have an administrative state that works this way. In fact, in some ways, the way the Constitution is built, both the written and unwritten Constitution, really um, is a challenge to the administrative state. So going back to what we talked about earlier, the separation of powers, in order to function, the administrative state or the managerial state really can't adhere religiously to the idea of separation of powers because it's their job, at least as it imagines it, to solve 
problems, solve social problems. And is if you have officials that are problem solvers, that means you're not doing law, you're doing social engineering. Right? It almost sounds so, like it's a hole in the Constitution that we've well, put all but, these but rules on who is supposed to be watching the watchers. Like, but nobody is the the real yeah. rules need to be around what are the limitations of the administrative state, the administration, the management, and and it's interesting. It's the way you describe it. It's it's kind of silent. But but so here's one of the interesting things, though. So over time, uh, the Supreme Court has provided for the 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 managerial state even if there was a difficulty in accommodating it according to the strict words of the constitution so let me give you one example in the the free the beer case this is como this is just a just a few fairly recently 2016 ish so there is a provision in the original constitution 1867 constitution that says Section 121, I think, that says all goods shall be admitted free from each province into all the other provinces. And, and Como, who lived in New Brunswick, was caught driving into Quebec and buying some booze and driving back. The RCMP arrested him on the way back. So you, can't, you know, can't do that. And the reason you couldn't do that is that there were New Brunswick liquor laws protecting the monopoly uh, in New Brunswick that prohibited people from doing exactly that. And so went to court and went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and you know, the words of section 121 saying, you know, all goods should be admitted free. In other words, Canada is supposed to be a free, uh, a, a, a free market union between provinces, free trade. And there's one really neat paragraph in the decision and the Supreme Court says, no, sorry, this is fine. There's one really neat paragraph that basically says, you know, if, if we took the words of Section 121 literally, then what would happen to the administrative state? I mean, all of the things it's supposed to do, you know, environmental regulation and social policy and this and that, you know, it would have to go by the wayside. We can't have that. Now, here's the Supreme Court deciding that the words of the Constitution must take a back seat to the reality of the administrative state. How are we being governed? Like the this is why I thought you, our listeners are going to be uneasy listening to you because it seems like the system is designed to get the elected people fighting with each other, get the MLAs fighting with the executive and the judiciary weighing in on all of it, and the real decisions are happening a layer lower, and mm -hmm. they cannot be challenged. That they if they if there is a judicial challenge to them, they often just get get upheld for the reason that you just described. So who's really in charge here? How are we well, being governed? Yes and no. I mean, the, the, the layer below point is very valid for sure, no question about it. On the other hand, I mean, governments do make decisions about things. I mean, it's it's clear that the Trudeau liberals have agendas about things, censorship of the internet and so on, and they're going forward with that. So the bureaucracy is not interfering with that, maybe because the bureaucracy agrees. I mean, hmm. I, I don't know. Um, but Or maybe that, the idea came from the bureaucracy. That's, I guess, what I was. It's possible. It's possible. Sure. It's quite possible. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. But... But the, the more fundamental idea is, fundamental problem is that, that if I can put it this way, so there's a saying that goes, I've, I've used it a lot, 
the same goes that that laws downstream from culture. I'm uh, sorry, laws law downstream from politics. Politics is downstream from culture, hmm. and we have a cultural problem. And the cultural problem is that we are becoming collectivists. We believe in that now, and you know, uh, conservatives think that a lot of them anyway think that they are their their job their role the role that they want is to protect our cultural institutions and they're behind hmm. those institutions are gone they are already changed there is nothing left to protect so if you are a conservative and you believed in that set of values that set of premises then you are the rebels you are the revolutionaries and until conservatives get their head around that idea they are going to fail they're protecting something that no longer exists so how do we rebuild if all the institutional structures we thought we were defending don't actually exist. I guess, you know, it's funny because I, I read Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, and he really challenged me because I, I put liberty as my number one value, but that's only one of multiple values that he puts forward. There's also other values like loyalty to the group, and sanctity is important. It's part of the reason why we have this strange attitude, I think, about viruses is we don't want to desanctify our our collective spaces. But uh, but collect collective or communal action is bred in the bone based on our evolutionary biology. I, I do accept sure. that, but it can yep. be manifest differently. There's got to be a way. There's a difference between helping somebody in a barn raising versus saying. You can't raise your barn because the collective have decided you it is not your turn. There, so there seems to me to be some some misapprehension that we have. We want to be part of a group. We want to be yeah. part of a society. We want to be part yeah. of a community. Yeah. But I don't necessarily right. want that community to veto the things that I believe in or the things I want to do. And where is that balance? How do we how do we embrace the community spirit and the collective right. nature that we've developed as humanity without throwing out liberty alongside it? I think that's very simple. It's, a, it's an answer that a lot of people don't like. But the answer is very simple. Those people who believe in liberty do, don't not believe in community, do not, don't not believe in family or groups or social, so, so, social, social cooperation or any of those things. They, they, they fully, well, I mean, I don't speak, I want to speak for everybody, but there's no inconsistency between believing in liberty and believing in the role of all those things. The distinction is this. It's the distinction between voluntary and coerced. Mm -hmm. If everything is voluntary, then you have liberty. And if you have liberty, then you'll do all those things. You'll have families, you'll have communities, you'll have cooperation, you'll have everything. The difference is that some people will not accept that the choices, the free voluntary choices made by some people are okay, regardless of what they are. Some people insist that they know so well what the values have to be for everybody that they're willing to enforce those values upon everybody. And that is not liberty. That's coercion. That's collectivism. The difference is collectivism is about 
the force of the state. If you take the force of the state away, then all of this collective social organizations, communities, families, and so on will happen, but it will be voluntary. And I prefer that vision, but I have had to come to accept in the last two years that I'm in the minority. I thought people valued liberty above security and it turns out not to be the case. Nope, and I don't know if that's just a, a, a phase we're going through or if that's the state that you, if maybe that's through all periods of time in history, 70% of people would rather be taken care of than chart their own course. And this is just sure. an extreme manifestation of it. But if we're in the minority, those of us who love liberty want that voluntary exchange and, and ability to make our own choices for whatever the outcome may be. But our means of making decisions is through these democratic processes and we're in the minority and we have the administrative state that wants to maintain the, the technocratic, I'll tell you what's good for you uh, approach. How do you change that? It, it seems like we've created a, a situation where we can't restore liberty. Well, you're, you, the, 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 the real shock is that it's not as small a minority as you're describing. Okay. And maybe it's not even a minority. I, who knows? But the way not to fix it is to go along with the premises that are put before us and just try to hold them back a little bit. You know, to try to try and make, you know, a single payer healthcare system more efficient. Okay. That's a that's a loser strategy. So the so for people who believe in what you're talking about, what's happened over time is, you know, there's a line here and then it's backed up and then it's backed up and it's backed up trying to go along with the dominant narrative so that you don't look like you're crazy. But every time you go along with it, the thing expands. So what you have to do in my, my, in my opinion is you got to say, uh-uh, no, we are on the wrong track. And here's what's better. In other words, you have to lead. You, you cannot try to compromise with an ideology that is in direct opposition to what it is that you think is right. You must confront it and you must give people a choice. And if they were, if they reject the choice, then so be it. But right now that choice doesn't, doesn't, is not seen to be a real one hmm. to most people. Well, I think you're right. And it, it challenges me because I've been a, a supporter of, unity when it comes to conservatives all coming together under one tent. But I think that we've observed what happens is that conservative politicians have essentially said, we'll do exactly what those other guys are doing, but we'll grow the state a little less fast, or we'll tax exactly you so. just a little bit less. <laughs> it's exactly, not actually a exactly transformation. So. Yes, exactly, exactly so. Exactly. That's exactly what has happened. And that, other, that's, you know, there's so you, what you have is you have conservative parties trying to be progressive parties, but just not quite so out there as the actual progressive parties. And instead, perhaps the argument is when you look at perhaps the role that the New Democrats or the Green Party have played in Canadian politics, they've been sort of the the principled voice of opposition, but because they've been such a powerful voice they've had such a huge influence on the mainstream party that's able to get elected the liberals 
So maybe there's something to that, is that there needs to be a few of those strong principled voice offering that alternative vision, but without any expectation that they are going to get elected, that they're just going to influence the, the public dialogue. Sure, but this is not just a not just a political thing. I mean, this is this is happening through the culture as well. We on an earlier occasion we talked about critical theory, right? And critical theory is is, is a um, it's a set of premises or an agenda that's made its way sort of through the universities first and now into the culture, into all the corporations and the HR departments and the government uh, departments and the, even the banks and especially the media and, and so on. It's a set of ideas, essentially anti-Western ideas, collectivist ideas that reject the premises upon which upon which Western civilization is built. And, you know, in, in a way, it reflects this thing called the, the, the woke law of projection. And, you know, the, the, the wokesters are sort of today's critical theorists, if I, can, if I can put it that way. The woke law projection goes like this. The things that the, that the woke accuse the society of being is what they are mm. themselves. So society is racist. Well, actually, the woke are pretty racist because the, the rule they want is based upon distinctions between race. Right. And the other central thing that critical theory says is that Western civilization is based upon power, hmm. power imbalances between groups, between identity groups. That's all it is. And here's what's happening. Our culture is transforming into a society in which everything is about power between groups. And they are playing that game. And by God, they intend to win it. Well, here's in the other problem. Words, in other words, let me put it this way. Yes. Here's the thing that people can't get their head around. They really mean it. They really mean it all the way. So if, if you think this is just you know, sort of a temporary aberration or it's just an extreme situation that will come back, get your head in the game. And it's a, it's a good reminder because it seems to me that what happens when confronted with the uncomfortable ideology you're presenting, a lot of what happens is that those who oppose the way the culture is going, they just opt out. They say, okay, you know what? Yeah. I'm not going to teach in an academic environment. I'm not going to be a member of the media. I don't want to do K to 12 education. I won't get involved in film. And so all of the avenues where culture is created, those who might fight against it have essentially just ceded the ground to those who have these views that are hostile to liberty. And so what do you right. do? <laughs> How do you, again, it's, I feel like every time I'm trying to find a pathway forward, we're dead ending about how you do the reversal. Well, well, so there are two choices, right? You can either disengage and work with other people who are like-minded to, to sort of build a parallel society that you just live in all by yourself and hopefully be left alone now you might not be left alone that's the problem they the, being left alone is not something that they like to do they, they might not leave you alone because you're not going along with the narrative and they need people to be one with the narrative so it's one of the choices the other choice is you know you gotta you gotta do what you're not inclined to do which is to get involved and do all the dirty things like so people who want to be free typically are not the ones who want to be busybodies they're not the ones who want to sit on the boards and the committees and the tribunals and the and the and the you know all, all, all of those places where people are making decisions about other people 
liberty people are not inclined to want to do that. But the busybodies are, and they're all doing it. So you either got to decide to, 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 to replace them with yourself or to find some other way to live. Well, and because I this, guess this, this is, is part of their reason for being. And I wonder how far we go down this path. You, you, you did in one of your articles where you're talking about externalities is sort of where this could naturally lead to. Uh, I, I, I thought you had such a great insight when you said China's becoming more like us, but we're becoming more like China. And China really is pioneering how you use technology in uh, not a, not in a positive way, which I think the UK initially had hoped with their closed circuit camera technology that they would catch the bad guys, but to monitor every action of your citizen in sure. order to judge what kind of good citizen they are, and then give them a social score based on how yeah. much credit they have. And I, I you know, I started doing stories on that when it was first started emerging, but it never occurred to me that it would ever happen in any of the Western states, Western liberal democracies. I'm not so sure now. And I, I wonder if you can see a path where that is just the ultimate end of what we're seeing right now. It's just, we're only a few, a few steps away, a few more steps easily, away from it. Easily, easily. If it can be done, it will be done. Why would people want that to be done? That's, I guess, maybe the, that's the culture issue, isn't it? Is yeah. is how do you how do you then get people to restore their their love of liberty? It almost seems like you have to have terrible things happen to people. Like they go to buy gas and they they can't because they've already used up their quota of CO two emission credits and they're not able to get to work that day. I mean that's one of the the, right. the ends that could potentially be realized that if your credit can get turned on and off. Well, there are, there are so many metaphors here that might be used, right? There's the, there's the frog in boiling water. Right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people are frogs in boiling water. They don't understand where this is going. Uh, I mean, you can say the same thing about the vaccine passports. I mean, people have made the argument, I think quite reasonably, that this is setting up the infrastructure for exactly the kind of thing you're describing. It'll, it's an easy transition from a vaccine passport to a social credit scoring system that monitors your carbon output. Why not? If if your stated objective as a government and as a culture is to restrain carbon emissions and restrain your economy for that reason, and to make sure everybody's contributing in the same way they obeyed during COVID, what better tool could there be? This is this is this is where we're going. It's it's not even being hidden. I guess I'm always of the view that Galt's Gulch will be out there one day by someone. There'll be some group of liberty-loving entrepreneurs who just decide that they're going to buy a little plot of land so that they can operate on a, a free enterprise economic model. And I wonder, is, is, that, is that real? When you look through history, do we have any examples of where the administrative state having grown to the point where it's intruding in people's lives begins to be dismantled? Or is it more a matter of revolution because we have had those kinds of political changes? Or is it opt out? Is it that the freedom loving people just move to a place that has terrible broadband so they can't do this kind of tracking of everyone? I'm trying to figure out where, 
where this ends? Is it uh, there is a sort of a stay and fight type approach, or is it actually having to find a, a new way of, of of building a society from scratch based on the foundational principles? I mean, that's what happened in America, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, at least in America, they had some place else to go. I mean, there were people there already, but it was largely, you know, relatively speaking, empty space uh, compared to Europe. Um, but one of the problems, and, and you can say the same thing about these other moments in history where people have fled, you know, people fled from Germany, people, people fled from communist Russia. And there was a place to go because the, there was the West. Where are you going to go? Okay, this is not the hopeful note I wanted to end on. Well, here's the hopeful <laughs> note. Here, here, here's the hopeful note. And it, it's, it is possible that there are, are, are still a significant portion of people who would agree with what you're saying. And if they had opportunity to hear somebody in the leadership realm who said, people were on the wrong track, this is what we're going to do instead. All this other stuff, no way, you know? And there are people who are trying that. There are people, they're sort of on the fringes right now. And then hopefully they won't be on the fringes very long, but you need people to lead instead of to try and accommodate what they think the culture is demanding and say instead what they think the culture should be like. To show a little bit of courage, show a little bit of vision to, to, to tell us what we can, you know, latch onto and, and, and support and, and follow in the non-sheep sense, to, to, to hear and decide and understand that this is what, what, you know, the values upon which the society we thought we lived in are based. Well, I'm so, I'm so pleased you're prepared to make that argument and hopefully it will be mainstream sooner than we realize. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Danielle. Thanks very much. That is Professor Bruce Party. He is Professor of Law at Queen's University, also Executive Director of Rights Probe and Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.